right. So you may be wondering what somebody from Goodreads is talking about emerging technologies, but I'll get into that. Um, what I'm trying to have everyone get out of today is a little bit of an understanding about how working on a new technology is different from working on a new or existing product. Um, and what I think this is important to do is everybody thinks working on emerging technologies is really sexy and exciting, and it can be, but it's a very different job than working on an existing product. Um, this is probably, I think, what brought people here today. I used to work on Google Glass. Um, what brought me to Google Glass is I actually was one of the first hundred people at Google testing Glass. I was blown away. I fell in love with this technology. This photo in particular was taken by my friend wearing Google Glass, of me wearing Google Glass. It's at Levi Stadium while it was under construction and we were going through a tour. This kind of illustrates some of the things I love about Glass. In this picture, I'm wearing some safety shields um, and just kind of going around and you could really do everything hands-free. So that, like, I was so excited about this technology. A little bit briefly about me and kind of what brought me here. I went to school at Stanford. I had a really multidisciplinary kind of approach to my studies. I like taking English classes. I like taking psychology. I like taking classes from the D school. I like taking computer science. You're going to see a lot of that multidisciplinary approach and kind of how I talk about technologies and how I approach my work today. After school, I went to Google. Um, I had no idea what I was going to do. I started in kind of a tech support role and I actually wrote emails from customer support at Google. So if you were one of the lucky people, you actually may have gotten a response from me for a while. From there, I progressed to doing a lot more kind of looking at what that feedback and what that feedback meant for the product. And I fell in love with product management. Uh, I was at Google for seven years. Uh, last, the last group I was with was with class. Um, and then after that, I left to go to Linden Lab where I worked on a new VR platform. I was there for about a year and a half. Um, and then I left and recently joined Goodreads, and that's because I wanted something different out of uh, the skill set I was building right now for my product career. We'll get a little bit more into how that's different and what I was going for. So next I wanted to ask, who are you? This is a few more people than I thought we did, so I think we can do kind of hands. Uh, who works in tech today? Raise your hand. Okay, most people. Um, who's a product manager? Okay. Who works with emerging technology? Hey, a handful of people. Um, so as I go into this, I kind of built this so it could go for people who are working in emerging technology, for people who aren't, for people who are PMs, for people who aren't. Um, this is my views. It's not of that my, of my current employer. It's not of my previous employers. Usual disclaimer. Um, so there's three key lessons I wanted people to take away from this. The first is that new is slow. The second is no one knows what they're doing. And the third is this big fear of the unknown. So there's this concept that everything coming with the future is really fast. Um, I use a simple Google test when I want to decide if like two words are associated and you get twice the hits for future fast as future slow. Kind of gives you a rough sense. Everybody thinks technology is coming really fast. I'm here to tell you that's not true. New is slow. When you do bleeding edge development, it's much slower. So for those of you who work in non-emerging technology, how many of you work on kind of like a web app or site? How, how often do you guys release your software? Two weeks. Two weeks, two weeks. Some people release daily, some people release weekly. If you're working in an emerging technology, you go much, much slower. Your releases are, you know, at the minimum four weeks, maybe months, maybe quarters. So when you're at the bleeding edge, you're going much slower. There's a couple of reasons for that. As you get more mainstream, you kind of automate processes. 
Uh, a simple example of that is you get builders. So you can make a WordPress site and it can look pretty good in 30 minutes. Now there's things that let you build mobile apps. They look okay and you can do it really quickly. The more mainstream a technology gets, the more automated it gets in terms of building. That doesn't mean if you're doing kind of a custom platform, you don't need to put a lot of time and energy into it, but there are shortcuts. Second, how many of you guys use A-B testing today? Do you guys use Optimizely like, or, or a jet all available platform? If you're building a new technology, it doesn't hook into Optimizely. You're talking about not only building everything yourself and having that take a long time, but then you're talking about building an infrastructure to A-B test it. So most of the time, you don't A-B test. Now, if you're a product manager at something else, that sounds weird. Like, how do you not quickly iterate and look at the data and make decisions? It's not what you do with emerging technologies. Even looking at the data. So people talk about things like analytics. You can get a pretty good view of what's happening on your website with Google Analytics. Doesn't mean you don't need a SQL database, doesn't mean you don't need to do more work, but you get a start. What does that look like for VR? It doesn't exist. I met with companies trying to be that, and they, they haven't even deci decided what they want. They say, tell us what you want. What are you gonna do? And the metrics you want aren't as simple as they went to this page. You wanna know, what did they look at? Where did they get sick? Did they take off their headset because something went wrong? How do you know what they interacted with? It's not a click. They're moving their hands in three-dimensional space. What does that mean? How do you represent that? These problems aren't solved. So even though you're working on this like very cutting edge thing, you're not being as data driven as people might expect, which I just find really funny. Like everybody thinks you go faster with new technology, you're going a lot slower because of these things. You're running into technical barriers. So on things like glass, we talk about, you know, how, how long can the battery last and actually be a size that you'd want to wear on your head? How, you know, do people's computers have a high enough CPU that they're not gonna reduce the frame rate when you're running VR? On other products, you run into technical barriers. Sure, all the time. Not as much as you do with emerging products. You're making decisions based on what is technically possible at that time, even if you know in five or 10 years it, won't, it should be easier. All right, so you're already going slow. It's taking a lot of time to build stuff. Adoption's tricky too. So talk about a hit success product. Talk about Pokemon Go. Within a week, it had 20 million users. If you had every single VR user download your app on every single headset, which again means you made it on every single headset and we already talked about how slow development is, you wouldn't have half that. So the addressable market is much smaller. So again, you're going slow. There's no such thing as like an overnight success for these markets. That's because technology adoption is much slower than people expect. Um, so here's where you're gonna see me get a little bit multidisciplinary. I'm gonna give a little bit of a history lesson. Uh, this is kind of a, a chart for the adoption of cars. It starts around 1908, which is when Henry Ford had the Model T. Then goes up and you get this typical hockey stick curve everybody looks like. Everybody thinks that's great. You join when it starts, it goes up. The first cars were actually developed 40 years before this chart begins. So really what you're not seeing is a line that goes here. This is mobile phones. Looks a little better. This chart starts at 1980. You can see how far it goes up. You think, well, that's more representative. Still, that's missing seven years. The first mobile phone was developed in 1973. 
Took a huge long time before we ever got to this hockey stick. Same with smartphones. This graph starts in 2005. The first smartphone I believe was in uh, 1994. Should have it on my slides. Uh, but you get all this time before it hits this hockey stick curve. So what you see when you see these graphs is this really nice hockey stick curve. And everybody's like, I wanna get in here. I wanna be at the ground floor. And so I experienced that growth for my career, for my product, for that, my development. What they don't show is this. This is the long period of time when people are actually working on emerging technologies and they're not quite catching on. So there's two points in here. This first point is excitement. That's when you hear about a new technology and you're really excited and you're like, oh my God, this is the thing. That's what I went through when I found glass. I first tried it on and I was like, this is amazing. There's then this huge trough of disillusionment where people realize this is hard. How do we solve these problems? The promise, we're not quite there yet. So you can kind of see that happening today with VR and AR. Um, so people predicted a really sharp incline in kind of the number of headsets sold in numbers that actually dwarfed in sometimes the adoption of mobile phones. That's where you start having mistakes. So you see startups go under because of this. People assume, hey, the users are going to be there and I'm going to build a product and then the users are going to come and use my product. It doesn't quite happen like this. So you can go to a VR fair like one year and the next year the businesses are gone because they didn't have a sustainable business model because they built that on this kind of hockey stick curve coming and it never came. Um, so this is just like a very important issue. It doesn't mean the product is wrong. It means it always takes longer and it's slower than people expect it to be. All right. So now I want people who had the same idea as the group they talked to to raise their hand. Nobody's raising their hand. This is what happens when you work with a new technology versus an existing product. When you work with an existing product, there's common language and common ideas you share, and people tend to go to the same thing. I'll kind of go into what I mean by that. This is a set of VR menus. None of them are the same. These are all people who are building VR as their full-time job, and they all did something different. In this one, somebody's looking at their hand to have a settings menu occur. This is a phone screen, in, or, or like the home screen in Samsung. It's kind of a floating out there menu. Uh, this is kind of posters against the wall or menus. This is one that popped up in the middle of a room randomly. And th this is my very favorite, which is from Job Simulator, which is to exit, you eat a burrito, because they think you should pick up menu items. My point is there's no standard with new technology. People are inventing it themselves. What that means as a PM, as a designer, as anyone working on this product is, this is a hard problem. As a PM and a non-emerging technology, you can kind of cheat. You can say, make a settings menu. You don't have to run a usability study. You kind of know what's happening. People understand a settings menu. Hell, you could probably give it to an engineer and just have them implement it if you really were short on resources. And it wouldn't be perfect, but it would be a settings menu. You can't do that with VR. So new technologies lack familiar affordances. Existing technologies have affordances. So what do I mean by that? Who knows what an affordance is? A couple people. Um, what an affordance basically is, it means you recognize kind of a pattern or a symbol and you kind of agree what it means. Who recognize what these three lines mean? Raise your hand. What if I said this is in the upper right hand corner of an app? It's a menu. We all understand what this means. If you saw it in an app, you would click it and you would understand because we all agree that this is kind of what that symbol means. We don't have that for VR, so you have to develop it. 
So somebody's spending time thinking through these problems for every simple thing. And I picked on menus because it's such a tiny thing and it's something where we don't think about, but you have to do it for every single interaction. Now as a PM, that's kind of overwhelming. Where do you decide where you're gonna spend your time? My guess is that your menu is not your most important thing you're building. Maybe it is, but probably not. For each new path you forge, you kind of have to decide, am I gonna go fast and do it wrong? I'm gonna accept throwaway work, I'm gonna implement this menu and realize, hey, it probably won't work out, or I'm gonna double down and get it right. But that's gonna require time and funding and maybe we're spending weeks researching when we could be implementing and maybe we can't do that. Even if you go the right path, you might get it wrong. So again, I like kind of looking back to look forward. Uh, this is a 1994 PDA home screen. This is what they thought an OS should look like. And I pick on this because it's done by Tony Fidel. Uh, this, he built this and then he went on to build the iPod interface and he went on to build Nest. So obviously he has a pretty good product sense. Obviously he gets usability, but he didn't quite get it right here. This is what we call kind of skeuomorphic where they actually tried to represent an entire room and have everything you kind of click on and have this metaphor where you walk from room to room to access anything. Nobody would build an app like that today because we now have accepted standards and kind of when you look back, it looks silly. So when we look at VR menus today, we may look at them with the same eye you look at a construct under construction GIF on a like website. We know now you don't need that, that's silly. An example of doubling down and getting it right, I like to talk about uh, the mouse IDEO did for Apple in 1980. What I think is amazing about this is 35 years later, we still use the same mouse. Sure, you may use a trackpad, sure you use a mobile phone, but when people need a mice, they use one roughly like this. Prior to this, people were using keyboards or mouses that had 10 times the cost. IDEO spent a long time doing research with people, understanding how they interact with the system, because Apple decided this was an important thing to get right. So as a PM, you kind of have to decide where are those important things I'm gonna get right, where am I gonna double down and spend that time, and where am I comfortable doing throwaway work? And I do not joke when I say I've been to a tech talk on menus in VR. Like this is literally the level of detail people have to go to until an industry standard is kind of agreed on. Uh, which brings me to my next point. Nobody knows what they're doing. Uh, so again, if you're a technical expert, I mean no disrespect to you. So you get people who, you know, maybe you got a PhD in optics. So you're coming up with a really cool application and you're building this next generation technology. Who knows how to use that? Who knows how to build a really great product with that? Nobody, because the technology is brand new. So usually you get a pattern of kind of cool technology and then a cool application, and then you get a useful application after that. And you don't get the product experts till you start getting in here. Kind of scary, kind of cool. Um, so again, product experts lag technical experts. Sometimes that means as a PM this field, you wanna be a technical expert first, but it means you're not coming in as much with the usability eye if that's the case. Uh, the bright side that I always like to say, especially to people who are aspiring product managers, is there's plenty of room for you to get involved early. So the first time I was asked to be on a panel for VR and AR, I thought, this is weird. I haven't been in it that long. And then I sat down on the panel, and I'd been in VR and AR longer than almost anyone else on the panel. Like, people become experts fast in these technologies. If this is exciting to you, if this is where you want to take your career, the door is open. Uh, so my last point is kind of what I call fear of the unknown. 
I thought about calling this change aversion, or maybe it's always been this way, but I don't think that illustrates quite the kind of guttural reaction people have when you talk about emerging technologies, and I really wanted to get that across. So the point I have for you guys is people fear the unknown, but luckily they do it in very predictable ways, which means as you are part of this new technology, you can kind of predict how people are going to respond. So one of the central questions I think about when people fear things is privacy. I mentioned I worked on Google Glass, so this comes up in the idea of glass holes. So when Glass came out, it was getting banned from places. People were saying, you can't bring it to this bar, you can't bring it there, you're going to take pictures. Oh my god, I feel this is a threat to my privacy. People, somebody actually got like in a fight in the San Francisco bar because they were wearing glass, I guess. This is not an issue unique to glass. That article was from 2014. This is from 2004. It's talking about how camera phones are a threat to privacy. It is saying every time a camera phone takes a picture, you should have a flash because otherwise how do you know when people are taking your picture? Ten years, would you have the same thing? Would anybody react to you having a camera phone in a bar now? No, probably not. People don't have the same fears, but this is a reaction. Now, some of you may say, okay, this is a 20th century reaction. This is, you know, what we deal with now in their modern technology. Nope. I'm going to take it back to cameras. So the Kodak camera, excuse me, the Kodak camera came out in 1890. It was the first easy-to-use camera. So it was this idea that you could just push a button, rest would just happen. Well, this is one of my favorite quotes about it, which is, have you seen the Kodak fiend? Well, he has seen you. He caught your expression yesterday while you were in recently talking at the post office. He has taken you at a disadvantage and transfixed your uncouth position and passed it on to be laughed at by friend and foe alike. His click is heard on every hand. Kodak fiend was actually a term people used. So the Kodak fiends of the 1890s are the glass holes of today. So I like to keep that in mind that people are being very predictable. The technology changes, but people's reaction is kind of the same. I don't want to say that means their reaction is wrong. I'm not saying you're wrong to be afraid of privacy threats, but things change over time. We adapt. Nobody would have a problem with the Kodak camera today. This was so extreme that cameras were actually banned from national parks and monuments, much like drones today. This is just a perception that changes over time. There are real issues, and we should talk about them, and it does affect how your product goes into market. For example, cell phones in Japan have to make a noise when the camera's pressed because they're afraid of privacy concerns. So your market will react. You do have to deal with this, but opinions change over time. So the second kind of question, this is kind of true of all disruptive technologies, but I think you especially encounter it in kind of emerging technologies. But does this decentralize knowledge or control? Again, I like the history lessons. This is a slide of burning books. This is happening in 1493. Why was it happening then? Gutenberg just came out with the printing press. The printing press was one of the first things that really decentralized knowledge and control. Before that, the Catholic Church actually approved all books that were made. And that was easy because there was somebody transcribing a book page by page by page so you knew what was going into it. A printing press meant you could do a book much quicker and it changed all that. So people talked about burning the books. They talked about getting rid of the technology. You can see that in any number of things. So if we're talking historical, craftsmen and the idea of a guild system versus industrialization. These people had power, they had the knowledge, it became decentralized, people objected. Encyclopedias versus Wikipedia, the idea that this one company had all the knowledge and then it was online. And then what do you do with that? 
For a more recent example, you could talk about something like black cabs in London versus Uber and Lyft. Black cabs historically had all the knowledge. To be a black cab driver, you had to pass a test about all the London geography. Compare that to the entry of bar for Uber and Lyft. Zero. <laughs> Depends on your driver, but sometimes it is zero. <laughs> so how do you deal with this? These are two examples. I'm sure you guys can come up with others. There's two kind of strategies I've seen that help. The first is showing users the benefit. That's the idea that you stop having this fear of the unknown when you see the good that comes out of the product. So you stop fearing the camera when you see it help you take a picture of your child's first steps. You stop fearing the app when, hey, it picked you up in the middle of the night when nobody else would. Um, the second is time, patience, and ubiquity. So to go back to the historical example of the Kodak Bean, 1890, these things were considered a nuisance. By 1900, they, everyone had one, so it was normalized. We don't think twice about it today. So that's basically my talk. I have the three lessons for you guys that working on new technology is actually much slower than you would expect. That no one actually knows what you're doing, but that can be a great opportunity for you guys if you want to get involved. And the last is kind of this fear of the unknown and dealing with how society kind of deals with a reaction to technology. Questions? Sure. What skill sets are you looking for to build a team to deal with these challenges? So the question is, what skill sets are you looking for to build a team to deal with this? I think it depends when you're trying to deal with the problem and where. So again, I'm currently not working on an emerging technology, but you might, for example, you need people who are technical experts. You need people who are willing to do the usability, and you need funding. I'd probably say those are some of the three biggest ones. Um, funding can come in the form of a business person, it can come in the form of being a research unit at a bigger place, but you need to make it through that trough of disillusionment. Because a lot of businesses just bet on that hockey stick coming too early, and they don't have the solid plan to kind of make it through. My business plan is always the same. Test with real users, watch and listen. Mm -hmm. Iterate, test, watch and listen, iterate. So in the iterator, the watch and listen, what um Sure. So so when you iterate, kind of test and listen, how do you do that? And my answer is it's quite hard. So for an example, if you're dealing with an app, people talk about using a paper prototype. How do you paper prototype VR? What does that look like? You don't. You, I mean, the type of stuff you want to try, sometimes you can make it a little bit faster. For example, if you're building something on your own, maybe you can market in Unity and use something they have off the shelf quickly and see if that works and see people's reactions. But it's just a slower cycle, right? You're not getting feedback as much. And even if you had feedback, you have less users than you would for another app. So you're dealing with a small data set. It's a hard problem. And like, again, I think it's really interesting, but you have to be committed to wanting to solve these problems. So if you're a company that's at, you know, like not at the bottom of the hockey stick, but obviously farther out um, backwards, uh, and you know like, hey, this is not gonna be something that's, that people are gonna be picking up in the next two or three years, it's something much further down the line. How do you, how do you showcase that as like, you know, as a sustainable business investment? Say, hey, like we we are going to be the expert in five years, as opposed to I mean, that's not what Silicon Valley does, right? Yeah, it's so the question is, how do you deal with kind of making an investment where you're going to be an expert in five years? 
some companies are comfortable doing that. Like some of your big companies, you see like Microsoft, you see Google making bets in AR and VR today, even when they know the returns aren't immediately there. Some companies choose to enter later. It's a really hard kind of business question. Usually this is actually kind of a business pivot question. So when do you decide to pivot your business? To give you an example, something like Zynga. They were really focused on mobile, or they were really focused on kind of web. They didn't do the transition to mobile well enough because they didn't make that transition quickly enough. It's really hard to say, I'm gonna bet my business on this technology in the future. And I don't have an easy answer for how you do that because a lot of businesses don't. Sure. Can you speak to the difference of product management Can you clarify kind of what you mean there? Um, strategy, I, at least in my experience, is, is typically looked at as understanding where you want to bring your products. Mm -hmm. What are the opportunities that are out there? What are the questions and uh, what are the questions that the product manager is looking at in that context versus tactical, which might be more uh, how are we going to build this? How are we going to bring this to market? So what, I, what I've seen most successful in terms of strategic is figuring out niches. And I find products don't succeed when they figure out kind of the right niche. Um, my personal opinion is that's kind of one of the problems we suffered with on glass, that we, we were this really cool technology and we focused a little bit too much on being all things to everyone as opposed to being some things to some people. So I think people tend to be more successful, um, at least in my opinion, when you kind of focus on a target segment. So if you're dealing with something with VR, you might be saying, who has VR headsets right now? Okay, I think those are gamers. What can we build that gamers are gonna like? So you're kind of picking niches and kind of trying to make a strategic decision about that. Does that answer kind of tactical versus strategic? Uh, yes. Okay, great. What is the future of books? What is the future of books? Well, I'm working at Goodreads, <laughs> so I'm gonna say it's Goodreads. Um, I believe in the future of books. So I believe in this age of like, of what? The future of books as paper products. I, in, in general, I think as paper products, people still have a nostalgia towards them. Personally, I read a lot of my Kindle, but I believe there's something about kind of long form immersion in a book. Um, my take, we'll see. Sure. Uh, in the back, lower first. So can I talk about A-B testing decisions I made that made their way back into the product? Um, I'm a big fan of testing things informally. So even if you're running like a survey to kind of figure out what people want or do stuff like that, I try and use data whenever I can. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to come up with like a specific example I guess I'd want to talk to because I do it a lot. <laughs> like, Like the smallest example would be something like you're running a test email and you send it at like every different time and you see which one is most effective. Like that's that's a micro example, but that like changed how we dealt with kind of like acquisition for glass because it made a significant difference. And that's like again, I picked the tiny example because 
that's easier to explain, but like every example like that, there's cases where you can kind of test and, and think things through. Um, in the white. So the question is, how do you deal with resistance internally to suggesting a new change in technology? I'm going to say the example is maybe something like you work in a game studio and you're trying to say, let's do VR games. I, I think this is a hard problem. I think where you have to kind of focus again is showing them the benefit. Um, for people to overcome fear, there's, there's this book I read called Change, and it's the idea is there's a rational side to people and there's an emotional side, and you kind of have to address both. So if you're dealing with a business decision, usually you want a bit of a business case, but then you also want to kind of cater to that emotional reaction and figure out how can you make them connect to the product. Um, so something, whatever it is, you know, if it's like building a VR app and showing them how magical it can be, if it's you do something to kind of get them go like, oh, I get the business part and I understand emotionally why this is so important. Uh, there was another question in the back. How much strategic foresight do I work on in product development? That's, that's an, I, I'm not sure the right way to answer that question. I think every product manager uh, kind of has to think about the future of their product in their area five years down the line, ten years down the line, and kind of change the decisions they make today. Um, part of that's based on data and the trends you see, and part of that's based on like the vision you come up with and where you want the product to go. Um, I hope every product manager feels empowered to do that. It's you know something I think about with my team. I go over kind of vision docs and say, is this the future we're kind of building towards? Does that resonate with you? Do you think these are the right decisions? Does that help? Okay. Um, so when you're suggesting improvements to your product, um, it's really easy. So is, is the question is building trust on, on working on an emerging product, is it kind of approaching a new team or like approaching? I, I guess really, I don't know, because like, you know, you, you have all these ideas and everyone else has all these ideas and then the other question is the content, you know, like you can't point to like your past experience of like building successful tests in this um, So how do, you, how do you build that trust? So you build trust as a person. You don't build trust as a product. Sure, you build expertise, but the first thing you can do is build relationships. Like one of the things that brought me to Glass is people had seen my work and known my work, and that's helped bring me there, and that helped me bring me to my next job. But whenever you're making a leap, I say one, focus on building trust with people in general, like not specifically on this issue, but in general. The second thing I advise is make yourself an expert. Figure out does it require going to VR meetups and a conference and buying headsets and doing this. Hit the ground running, figure out what it takes for you to at least start being an expert, to start having something to talk about. Again, 
people aren't really experts early on in emerging technology. So if you're like, I'm gonna be the VR guy, you can become the VR guy. Sure. So the question is, what is the right time to kind of invest in a cool product versus pull the plug if you think you did it too early? That depends how you introduce a product. Like if you're a big company, maybe you have the money and time to kind of stand by that product. Maybe it's your passion project and you can find funding and you can run it on a, a low basis for a long time until you get to that thing. Or maybe it's not right for you right now. It's, it's not a like simple cut and dry decision. It depends like, are you willing to go through the slog till you get to that point? It's the same thing as any product and saying, am I willing to put in the work for this? When, so when did we know Google Watch should die? So I, I don't think there's ever like an instantaneous moment when everyone is like, this is done. And I'm, uh, you know, I'm no longer at Google, so I can't comment on what they're working on. But I don't think it was necessarily and it was done. Like they decided for the time, like, hey, this really works well in kind of factory floors and a lot of industrial use cases. Let's focus on that for now. So it was kind of like, let's change our focus. Let's pull back a little. Let's do something different. I can't comment on like when they'll do something different or when the button is. It's just you look at the data you have and you say, should we go forward? Should we not? I mean, people people get that feeling. So like again, I, I mentioned in my personal opinion, not speaking for on behalf of Google, is that you get to a point where you're like, this is really cool, but like, is it meeting that need? So like, there, there's a simple test. Do you want to put on glass in the morning when you wake up? Do you do those actions? Do people on the team do those actions? And when people on the team stop using the product, that's like a really good indicator, right? Like if, if there's, if you are not excited about your product, if the people who are your users are not excited about your product, that's a good sign. Two more questions. So, uh, go there. What is the most interesting and? I always think that's hard. Uh, the question is, what are the top three or like top kind of emerging tech things? Um, I mean, I think machine learning is really interesting. I, I don't know how much you want to call that emerging because it's been been around for a while. I think uh, we're just starting to like see some of the neat things you can do with it. Um, I, you know, I like AI. I have mixed feelings about chatbots, but um, and I, I still believe in AR eventually. It's just not a today product for me right now. Uh, one last question, I'm going to go there. How do you slow down leadership as a product manager if you think they're going too fast? Uh, depends. <laughs> I think I have a lot of these questions that are just kind of like, it depends. Um, again, whenever you're talking about change, my general answer is you have kind of a logical answer and then you have an emotional answer. Ideally, you kind of figure out why do they want to go so fast? Like, are they obsessed with being first to market? 
Like, is, is that the right thing? Being first to market actually has a lot of disadvantages. Like, if you think and look back to those slides, the first phone is not the most popular phone. The first car is not the most popular car. So sometimes it's a misconception of like, I have to be fast. Maybe you can address that. Um, it, it just kind of depends why they want things to go out. Is it a business need? Is it investors? Is it like a personal belief? You kind of have to address the rational argument. Um, my favorite book for negotiating that I'll do a little plug for is Never Split the Difference. It is an amazing book. It talks about kind of how you deal with different people and how you can kind of get them to agree. All right. Thanks, guys.